Hello and welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Jeremy Stoddard. Jeremy is an associate professor and the faculty chair of the secondary education program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research examines the role of media in teaching and learning history and democratic citizenship with a particular focus on engagement with difficult or marginalized histories and contemporary controversial issues. This episode is part of a larger series on how to have political conversations in the K-12 classroom. That broader topic will be the focus of our conversation. We're going to start by learning more about Purple State, a research project that Jeremy's working on. And then I'd like to spend the second half of our conversation talking about the role of fiction, both text and film, in teaching about politics. Jeremy Stoddard, thanks for coming on Fishing for Problems. Great. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background in more specifics than I provided in the intro? What is your research focused on and why does this work inspire you? Sure. Great. Yeah, I was originally a middle school teacher and engaged a lot in both. I really worked hard to try to figure out how we could engage kids in big global, either historical narratives, challenges, issues, political issues that were that had a, a very broad appeal, but also focused very locally on what can I do about it and how does this impact my community or my state or my local region or the folks in my classroom in terms of, of, of ethnically or demographically. So I've always been trying to find ways to have students engage more deeply with the types of things that we're learning in ways that are really relevant to them. And so I've now worked out in schools as an educational technology person, and then as a person who does teacher education primarily as my day job, helping secondary social studies teachers be prepared to go out and engage in the field. And then a lot of my research really focuses on ideas that that came out when I was even teaching and then working as an ed tech person. And these primarily are, I could always find the social studies hallway in any building because I could hear booming from like films playing classroom. And, and, and this was easy, even from my early days as sort of, you know, starting out as a teacher. And I was always really trying to figure out like, what the heck are kids learning from that? And why are teachers doing it? Right. We hear these stereotypes of like, you know, they're playing a movie and, and grading papers in the back of the room or something. It's because they're movies they're really obsessed with. And yeah, there's probably a little bit of that. But I think a lot of teachers selected films for particular reasons and then framed them in a way for their students to engage in some kind of content. So I was really interested in that early on. And, and that led to some of my um, my dissertation work and a lot of my research around around films sort of were questions that were raised and then trying to answer them as they went. Since the the Citizens United decision. I've also been really obsessed with the role of, of money and media and politics. And for my days working as an ed tech professional development person, this was like in the early 2000s. So we were still telling people like helping them turn their screens on and stuff, as well as like the early sort of media literacy kinds of things with trying to evaluate web sources and that. And I was always really troubled about the way that we were doing those types of things. A lot of teachers with sort of the crap test, if you're familiar with that, in terms of like looking at the the URL of the site, looking at, do they have an expert? Do they have really basic things? But it treated a web page very much as like a static text, as if we were reading a newspaper article, you know, like in the old days, like actually on paper. And so I was really interested in what we could do in classrooms that would help combat the likely effects of something like Citizens United. And what we've seen as a result of Citizens United is, you know, the last campaign, it was billions of dollars were spent across the U.S., I can't even remember the local races, but I, I know the, the Trump campaign, it was not only did they spend nearly a billion dollars each of those campaigns, but they, they have estimated a $6 billion basically free media advertising because of the way that journalism now is so much forced to carry stories that will drive viewers to them. 
So it's, it's a concept called earned media, which basically means free media coverage, right? And so even beyond, you know, it used to be we could say follow the money and see who's sponsoring the ads and those kinds of things. Now it's it's a bigger issue because it's it's social media sites, it's clickbait kinds of things, right? It goes in with some of the fake news and propaganda from other other groups getting in. It's a much more complex environment, I think, than even what we we had to deal with in the early 2000s. And it's it's growing exponentially day after day. So one of the things with with Purple State about five years ago, I submitted for a small grant and was able to try out this notion of a virtual internship. And what we're trying to do is basically build a simulation that for us, it's high school students are engaging in in a way that is more transferable than the types of simulations that are often used in, in sort of government classes or civics classes. Those tend to be focused on like a legislative simulation or the Supreme Court simulation, sort of on this national level of trying to understand the role of government and the processes that government goes into. And it's not to say those are bad, but they're really hard to transfer playing the role of a Supreme Court justice to what can I do in my town or how does it inform the way I vote or inform the way I take action on a particular issue or even become informed on those issues. So what we did with Purple State was put these students in the role of of interns and they're working at Purple State, which is a, uh, a political media consulting group, essentially. And so they're working for special interest groups on state level public policy change or uh, public policy issues. And so what we did, in, in I was in Virginia at the time, we did it on a statewide ban on fracking, which is a, a big issue in Virginia in terms of environmental concern. At that time, they were exploring fracking um, in the George Washington National Forest, which is in the western part of the state. But basically, the water flow all goes down throughout the state towards the east coast. So it's an impact if there's pollution or things, it, it's the watershed is huge going basically across most of the state. So it's it's something that different parts of the state would care about the issue for different reasons. And that's one of the goals of Purple State is to help young people recognize that you can disagree on a public policy issue, such as should we allow fracking or not, without thinking people are crazy or without screaming at your TV. I, I think polarization is one of these things that we're, you know, in some way trying to combat And we're trying to combat it by helping people, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say empathy, but definitely to understand that people can have differences and that's based on real things that matter to them and not just because, again, they're evil or because of political ideology. It's definitely informed by that, but it's not the sole basis. There are other reasons why people might think differently on on an issue based on where they live, based on who they are, based on economic conditions, all sorts of things. So essentially in the simulation, what they do is um, they work together as a team and they design a media campaign. So they're learning about the issue. They're learning how to research and evaluate sources such as news media. They're learning about earned media. And then they're understanding sort of what are the decisions made behind the scenes, why they might see a political TV ad or why they might see a social media ad. And the one of the, the sort of theories or hypotheses that we had is it comes from, from the world of media education, which is, you know, when you're looking at an advertisement or a film, it's really helpful to understand what are all the decisions that went into making that film and how then does it impact the representation that you're seeing and questions like who is it made for what's the intended message what's the the filmmaker or the the person making the ad trying to get you to think about it so those are the types of things that after they participate in this simulation we want them to understand something about the issue and be more informed we want them to understand sort of the factors that come into the role that media plays in politics. And we want them to have this notion of sort of a a more complex media literacy that they get not just that one ad and be able to evaluate it, but they understand sort of this whole media ecosystem that's driving it. 
And that includes who are the people funding these things? Why are they doing it? How are they trying to persuade me in certain ways? Why are they trying to reach older Republican voters via, you know, radio in rural districts versus social media for younger viewers in, in a large urban area, for example? Like, why are they seeing the things that they're doing? And so that's one of the big things we started with this pilot. And now we're doing a, a larger scale and much more high tech version in Wisconsin and Virginia currently that we're in the middle of, of sort of testing and iterative design. But it's, it's very much towards the same goals. And I think, unfortunately, with this, this uh, you know, election season behind us now, it's the importance of some of this work isn't unfortunately going away. And so I think it's it's sort of kept us trying to design something that will make reflective, sort of informed citizens who are not only able to take actions, but confident in being able to make some change in, in their sort of local or state area. Thanks for that. Yeah, there, there's a lot there to unpack. And I guess I want to start first with this idea of a game simulation or technology to support contemporary civic education. Why start there and not just give a kid a textbook or, or just a regular book uh, around, uh, you know, a political campaign or around media advertising, something like that, and expecting that they learn all of the critical skills to become uh, an effective American citizen? Yeah, so we have a couple of sort of principles that we're working on. The original version, we actually used an online platform that was existing, and it had teams of students in a high school class working with a facilitator that was one of my grad students. So they were actually interacting with someone outside of the school. There's several principles around sort of authentic pedagogy that we were running. One is they're working on a real world problem, right, which is obvious. They're working with real world data. So their census data, polling data, news stories were all real. We weren't, you know, we were... We were manipulating the, the polling data maybe a little bit, but it was still within sort of the truthiness factor that we, we tend to go for. But they're also engaging with someone outside of, of their what they saw as school. Right. So one of the things that we saw heard in the in this initial pilot was one of the one of the students in a feedback item gave us this quote, something like, you know, it's nice when they let us out of school to do these kinds of things. Some of the other virtual internships that the same lab that we're working with were running, they heard reports from some of the teachers that the students were actually putting it on their resume, like they were actually interns, because that's how they felt sort of that engrossed in, in the, the internship that they were in. So in that case, the technology afforded this ability for someone at the William Mary campus to actually be facilitating online discussions and chatting and supporting and helping these high school students in a classroom. We switched a little bit away from that for this um, this current grant, and partly because it's not sustainable. It's really expensive to have grad students where you need you know two per you know two groups of students for every one grad student that I had hired. You can't scale that up very easily, and it was really hard to automate that kind of support. So what instead we did was we basically made the teachers' role in the simulation in the classroom that sort of account manager sort of facilitation piece in the room to help support students. And a lot of the other sort of intellectual work that's going on, we put into some of these different tools that we've been building. And so one of the tools that we've been building allows students to dynamically really search across the state demographics and identify where certain groups are, where certain political groups are, demographic groups. They can access um, local news sources through this map so they can see on a layer that shows the politics. They can also see the pin where the news story is and try to associate those political views in that news story with who the people are around it, who's their audience, right? They can actually look and see that visually. And it's in a Google map interface that they sort of get intuitively. Then they can engage with polling data that we have pulling up dynamically. And then I think one of the affordances that we couldn't do at all in the original version that was a real challenge was 
we wanted them to somehow be able to actually simulate the effects of the campaign that they were designing. So we basically have them developing a proposal for their special interest group that they're working for and sort of pitching their campaign ideas to this group to see if they'll fund it. And in this version, we actually built what we call the campaign simulator, which is basically projects the likely effects of their campaign. So they're picking actual media markets, targeting certain groups with the way that they're using media to reach them, picking a message format. So if they want a negative campaign or positive campaign, and then sort of the level to which they're using any particular media. And it actually is based on a lot of political science research that we were able to use to look at sort of the multipliers in terms of what effect it would have with different demographic groups. And so they actually get like a change in polling data, how many people they've likely influenced and who they are in terms of their political identities or political views. So they can see if their goal is to do a campaign focused on sort of getting the base all riled up and, and mobilized, they can see which groups are they are they engaging with and getting excited and which ones are they sort of making angry? So they see the other side maybe going further against them. Or if they're trying to actually persuade people on the issue, they're targeting more that moderate to leaning groups on either side. And they can see which groups they're impacting that way too. So they can visually and through the data see sort of what the impact of their campaign is. And I, th I think the other piece that it allows for is one of our goals is, is this sort of notion of argumentative thinking, which means can they evaluate data? Can they use it to make decisions? And then can they write and justify their choices using evidence from the game? And I think in this case, it just is much more accessible to use some of the real world data that we're doing because it's a lot there through some of the, the interfaces that we've built to be able to use that data. So the, those are some of the affordances that we've been given. The constraint with this is we can't automate it to give the kinds of real support for students as well as this feeling that they are sort of working in a different situation other than a classroom setting. And so I think one of the, the constraints we still have is is they we've built in ways that they're sort of communicating with their non non-player character boss sort of through we've built in some video zoom calls with them and things but they can't actually interact with them so that's sort of a constraint that we're trying to then use the classroom teacher to build that in that's one of the things that we haven't done yet but definitely the affordances being able to visualize data access data manipulate data in ways that we weren't able to do if you just hand them a textbook or hand them even even if they looked at a, a, a polling worksheet or something like we're not we were using them in such a higher level way that allows them to to sort of play with the ideas, mess around the data, try out different strategies with this campaign simulator, and then come up and justify essentially what they think might work towards the goals of, of the group that they're working for. Yeah, so it feels like a much more interactive experience with more opportunities for students to get feedback on decisions that they make, questions that they have, things like that. Yeah, they also get exposed to local news. Mm. You know, what they might not be seeing on their Twitter feed or, or social media, however, you know, Instagram or wherever they're getting their, their feed from. And they're looking at statewide polling data. And, you know, it's from the Marquette Law Poll. It's from the Christopher Newport University Poll, right? They're looking at things that are actually relevant to their state that they may not actually, you know, despite it being all around them, they, they may not engage with it. And one of the teachers that we worked with here in Wisconsin did this really great job of tying it to a local referendum this last fall and saying, look, you saw those, you know, yard signs and things to pass this school referendum to get funding. And he's like, that was a special interest group, essentially, that got together and did that campaign to try to pass this. Like, this is the kind of local issues we're working on. And, and what we've seen so far is a real significant effect, especially in terms of 
young people's beliefs about two things that we thought were most important. One is engaging in issues and, and having a local impact with people that you might disagree with. And the other is engaging with sort of these different kinds of political media, which is one of the other goals that we've had. So we're already seeing, um, even in some of the early runs, which have been under trying conditions, to say the least, during the pandemic, seeing some good effects from the simulation, and, and we're going to keep developing it, and then next year run sort of a larger scale study. Interesting. And uh, yeah, empowering students, you know, helping them recognize that they have agency to make difference within their their own communities. I want to put a, a pin in that local versus national because that is something I'm particularly interested in and want to talk about it a bit. You, you've you've mentioned a couple uh, findings from your research. What else have you found in uh, preliminary research? How, how does a simulation impact students? Yeah, so uh, you know, in an ideal world, we saw the simulation as a as an opportunity for students to build skills and knowledge to go and engage in some kind of activity using the the using what they've learned. So ideally, what we'd love to see is a teacher take it. They've run the simulation in class. They've learned how you know how to think about media, how to possibly use it, how to construct messaging that would work. All of these things and that they'd actually go and engage students in a campaign on issues they care about in their local area using some of these strategies, right? To me, that would be sort of an ideal outcome from the simulation. Some of the things that we've seen with, with this current version that we're working on, especially I'll talk to the Wisconsin one because they were the ones that were in a hybrid classroom format, but have, have sort of the, has had the least restrictions in terms of, of what they've been doing. And we were able to zoom in and listen in on, on some of their classroom conversations, which actually one, there's been a lot of constraints of doing research during this time. One of the affordances is that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to drive to these schools every day to listen in on classes, but they allowed us to sort of zoom in and, and observe the classroom. And so that's actually been been sort of a boon that we got to see almost all the class sessions or listen in at least, even, even though we could only hear really the teacher and a little bit of the students. Some of the things, though, that we did do and listen to in the focus groups in terms of the impact, the students were really vocal about a couple of things. One was this recognition of why different people, even in their community, but also across the state, might think differently on the issue. And the issue that we're using this time is gun control. And so like one of the schools we're in is in a central part of the state where hunting and fishing would be a, a really high level sort of hobby in terms of the, the percentage of folks participating in it. And in not in this county, but even counties north in Wisconsin, you know, that can account for 20 to 30 percent of their calories in the year is from hunting and fishing. So these are these are relatively low low wealth counties that that rely on that even as a as a primary food source. So they were able to recognize why people in Milwaukee a more urban area might think about gun control in a certain way, whereas folks up that they know think about it very differently. And you even had students talking about how they had to try to navigate even their relationships with friends who might think differently on the issue. You know, some would say, you know, I have to not talk about the issue to save the friendship kind of thing that they, they avoid having conversations about that. Whereas other ones were much more, I think they talked about the the simulation sort of opening their eyes to, to seeking out and trying to understand why people might think differently on the issue and and actually having more evidence of of why people cared differently and that that they cared about it for very different reasons that were specific to their local community so they understood why people might want heavier gun control in areas where urban violence or suicide might be the main key things that they care about whereas other areas that care more about hunting say would would want less gun control, or it brought them around to the fact that they were okay with some kinds of gun control. And that the messaging that everyone wants to come to take our guns really wasn't 
factual in terms of policies that were being put out there, right? Or that the the concealed the current concealed carry law was perfectly fine. The other pieces that we saw in terms of outcomes was their ability to use at least some of the data really well. So they were able to access sort of these polling data, demographic data across the state and effectively use them in in the campaign that they were designing. What we saw in our first version of this campaign simulator was that they didn't really seem to understand the outputs from it and weren't effectively using it. So we've actually gone back to the drawing board a little bit, redesigned, and, and this is this is part of our project. Our project is is known as a um, design-based research. So we're doing it through multiple iterations, trying it out, seeing what works, what doesn't work, getting a new group of students, trying it out again. And so we'll be doing it again at least once or twice more this spring, um, as long as you know the, the, the school conditions allow it with a redesigned effort. And also what we found for the teachers was we were still asking them to carry too much of the burden and expertise in the simulation in this current version. So one of the things that we've done, and and so one of the things we're trying to do with the simulation is make it what we call an engagement first style of pedagogy, which means we want to get students into the problem and into using some of these tools. And then as questions arise, go back to sort of the definition of things or sort of the, um, the help manuals if they need it for using it. We want them to engage in the problem first and what they're trying to do and then figure out what they need to help support them in figuring it out as they go along. And what we find with some teachers is a little resistance to that. They want students to know all of this stuff before they actually do it. So that's a constant tension, I think, in, the, in, in simulations in general. And that's definitely what we saw. So it's taking longer than we wanted it to. And, and I think they were going into so much depth up front that, that the real getting their hands onto the sort of authentic piece of it was taking far too long and the students were, were bored with it, right? And then when they got into it, they were great. Um, so I think part of what we found was we actually need to put a heavier structure in for sort of what we were asking students to do so that teachers weren't having to fill in the gaps with what they, you know, to, to, it's sort of a fallback to go back to their pedagogy. And even the teachers we were working with were saying, yes, like they they got that that's what they were doing and they didn't even like it. Once they'd gone through it, they realized that they needed to get their, the students engaged in it first and not break it down to every single point like that. So I think I think those are some of the key things on a design side that now we're working on. And it means instead of having the teachers explain the task, we're getting an email from their boss or a communication from their boss, like, help me with this, do this thing. It'll get them into the tool, trying things out, learning where things are, analyzing data, and then sending them back an answer. And, and so that's that's one of the big shifts that we're really working on right now. Yeah, and I know you have alluded to in your research and during our initial conversation, this idea of authenticity. I work in the world of education technology, and so much of it is just trying to find creative solutions. A lot of it is not trying to go and find a manual to tell you how to do this. Uh, And I know that's the case in a lot of political campaigns. You try things, you see what works, you see what doesn't work, Uh, but there is no perfect playbook to to rely on uh, to do whatever it is you're trying to do well. Yeah, which is a real affordance of the, the simulation because there's no one right answer. There's really no one right answer. In fact, we went to try to get models from from the poli sci people that we've been working with as to how to to make the campaign simulator so that we can have multiple media types being used in the same media market. There's actually no research on that because they isolate everything experimentally. They don't actually they couldn't give us a multiplier to say if you really want to hit the Milwaukee area of Wisconsin with everything like radio ads, TV ads, social media, like what effect would it then have a greater effect? Or do you sort of wash out after a while when you've seen it so many times or even a negative effect at some point? And the, the poli sci folks said there's actually no research. They have no idea. So they're going on gut instincts. 
we also have some people on our team that actually ran political campaigns and they always had this rule. One said, we always had a rule of, we want to reach people seven times with our message. And I'm like, well, what's that based on? They said, I don't know, but that's what we always went on. So they, so we built that in the simulation. So I think, you know, we're, we're trying to not only use authentic data in this, but we're trying as much as we can without going so complex. It, it's mind boggling to build in some of the language that these people actually use and to build in things like that. Like we have a rule of, you know, we have a rule of seven times. We have no idea where it comes from, but that's what we're going for. Cause we, we think that's what works. We think TV ads still work, even though, you know, there's, there's sort of skeptical on that now and they cost so much, but, but that's what we're trying to build in the messiness. And it's also an extremely low stakes environment for, uh, for the students as well. So that experimentation isn't going to hurt anybody. It's not going to lose any political campaigns, real political campaigns. It's just a learning opportunity. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we want them to be able to make justifications for what they're doing and why they're doing it, because that, that's what we want them to think about when they see political media. Somebody's trying to reach me with this message for this reason. Yeah. And as you were just providing that example about Milwaukee and just say hitting Milwaukee hard with, you know, all your political advertisements, I feel like it creates some interesting conversations around sort of the zero sum nature, the perceived zero sum nature of politics is if you're able to say, pick off enough votes from Milwaukee, but uh, you are not winning over any voters in the rest of the state. Is that sort of a healthy political environment that you want is where you have these urban areas, which you know, look at the uh, the election results, the demographics of the of the 2020 election, and you've got uh, a lot of blue in the urban areas and a lot of red outside of those urban areas. And so, you know, are you just trying to win elections? Or are you trying to win elections, I guess, in the easiest way or trying to convince a broader, uh, you know, populace of uh, whatever issue that you're that you're focused on? Yeah, we so we have one of our um, advisors is a political scientist. She does political behavior and political psychology work, um, Jamie Settle. And she actually has a book that was like Frenemies, which is looking at how Facebook basically makes us sort of soured towards each other by by function of the design and, and what they try to emphasize. And so she's been great to have on the, on our team in terms of trying to inform us from what they know, at least in the political science research. And I think what she kept coming back to was, you know, both reminding us that we didn't have to be, you know, this notion of truthiness, that we want it to be authentic, but we also have these certain goals and we we want them to reflect on the system as it is currently, but also think about what it could be. And the other thing that she always reminds us of is that we do want them to talk about the, the effects of polarization. Some of the things that we did, partly because of the technical challenge that there is no research to do these multipliers, in the current version, what we've done is limited them to one media type per media market. So what that forces them to do, and, and they have a budget, so they have a constraint of a budget that they have to keep in mind. And then now they have to, they have to go to other parts of the state. So they can't just say Dane County is a half million people and it's deep blue. They have to think what's going to have the most effect in Dane County for that deep blue, if that's our, you know, if that's our side. And then where in the other parts of the state are there also populations that we want to reach? What we built in also were four special interest groups that they're working for one on each sort of far end of, of the political spectrum. So like a, a, a Second Amendment gun rights group that doesn't want any gun restrictions and then the opposite. And then two that were in the middle, sort of a trade association for gun retailers that are actually okay with, you know, background checks and things like that because it's actually a liability for them. You know, so they want, they want to more shift people a little bit one way or the other. And so what that means is, is it forces, depending which group you're working for, it forces different groups to have to look at different parts of the state. 
and use different media and use different messages. So then when they have those big group conversations at the end of the class or at certain periods, they were talking about that whole media ecosystem, the different type of groups, the different goals they might have, why they might reach and go for different audiences. But it also does raise this issue of polarization. And one of the things that we saw in the polling data is exactly what you're pointing out. Dane County, bang for the buck, has so many more and more committed sort of liberals. And Waukesha County, right outside of Wisconsin or right outside of Milwaukee, is the opposite. It's deep, deep red and a large population. And so we do, did want them to think about other parts of the state and not just focus in on those types of things, even though, unfortunately, to some degree, you know, on an issue-based thing, that, that's probably the, the pattern behavior you're going to see. So talking about that, I think, is one of the things that we can't do in the simulation. But I think one of the most important things we know about simulation research is having those conversations around what the simulation represents in terms of a system. And why it was built to like get them to think about certain things is a really powerful conversation to have. Yeah, and that that reminds me a lot of the research that you did on film and being explicit with students about the purpose of certain uh, movies. I mean, even text as well, what the author is uh, is trying to communicate or what the producer or director is trying to communicate uh, in the uh, you know limited time that they have uh, with you in front of in front of the screen and. Uh, budgetary constraints, you know, the message, things like that. Yeah, I think one of the things pedagogically that there's two big things with the film stuff that I've sort of come down to, like, I just need to say this when I get in with teachers. And most of them know it. And I think sometimes I'm just pushing over the edge for them to really, you know, use these as a sole focus. One is I use it usually I say, like, you're teaching both with and about film. So anytime you're showing a film, don't just use it for whatever event it represents or the content of it or the concept you're trying to get across. You also need to talk about who the director is, what's going on in the context of when the film is made, what does it represent in terms of that time period. Not that you're taking the students to film school or anything, but enough about the film that helps them to start to think about those backgrounds and that that any history film is really telling you more about the period and, and people who made it than it is the historical event that's represented because there's so much shaping and filling in the blanks of what would be there or that a film that has nothing to do with whatever you're learning about can tell you a lot about the time and political context it's coming from. So I use the Twilight Zone episode a lot in training teachers, and it's this one that's Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which really is, it was made in 1960. It's this great example of multiple sort of complex messages that are coming out of it. It's got McCarthy, Red Scare sort of groupthink in it. It's got science, the you know early science fiction and space race days in it. And it's got this sort of, it's set on Maple Street, which is this idyllic suburban street that's all white, white picket fences. And it's coming, you know, at a time when it's white flight coming out of the cities and, and this sort of idealistic nature of white America. So it's got all these complex things in a 25 minute episode or not even 25 minutes, probably more like 22 minutes with commercials. And so it's this, it's this text that really engages them in complex ideas. And you also get to teach about social critique and what role media plays in social critique. So you can learn a lot about what's going on politically and socially in, in 1960 from this 20 some minute little episode of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And as a teacher, as a high school social studies teacher, showing that film can be an isolated event or it can be part of a larger conversation about media literacy in general. And I think if you use it as the latter, it can be a much more powerful teaching experience. 
So before getting into film, there are still a couple questions that I have around Purple State, and you uh, answered part of this question, and maybe we've sort of squeezed all the juice out of that uh, lemon that we could. But the issue that was analyzed in your 2020 paper um, was fracking, and then you just alluded to the work you're doing in Wisconsin around gun control. And one of the one of the goals that you also have alluded to is to try to help kids understand both sides of an issue. And so I'm just curious how deep that runs because you can help a student understand that one side believes fracking is bad or one side believes that there shouldn't be, you know, restrictions on gun ownership. And then, you know, another side that believes that fracking is indifferent and it is, uh, and therefore, because it's economically beneficial, we should do it. Or that, you know, there should be more uh, tough restrictions on gun control. So the student can conceptually understand that there are multiple policy positions, but at least to me, it seems more important that, sort of like the ideal ideology behind those beliefs is even more important to understand. So really this person holds this policy position. Why does that person hold that policy position? So again, we've talked a little bit about this, but how much do you dig deeper to help students really examine the ideological roots of all sides of an issue? Yeah. So we, I, I would say we try to do it a couple of different ways. One is in some of the materials they're getting. So they're, they're looking at the issue through multiple sort of types of data. One is they're looking at the alignment of polling data specific to the issue with where these folks are in the state and who they are. They also know the voting records of those folks. And and so one of the things that we see that you're alluding to is the number one predictor on any single issue is party identification, right? So that, that part comes through really clearly because they can see it. On the other hand, some issues are very geographically specific. And then what they're learning through looking at local news sources helps to fill in that next part of the blank. And that is, what is the story essentially? So for fracking, what the story is in parts of the really Republican focused George Washington forest area is job opportunities, right? In that same county, though, in the, you know, we used to back in the day have the liberal local newspaper and the conservative local newspaper, and you actually got exposed to these things from different perspectives. Now that doesn't happen as much, but you can still find things around in the same region where you're going to get those perspectives. And then you can talk about why they might feel differently about it and who their audience is from these media groups. So that's a second piece that we try to get at it from. We do, and this is something we're trying to get better at actually in the we're trying to more thoughtfully use examples of political advertising sort of of many different sorts that get across those messages that help to expose ideologies as part of our training. So to give them a sense of a certain like bandwagon kind of message, we're going to show them an ad from a political group of a bandwagon kind of message and talk about what it represents and what the group represents. So I think for us, I think they can get at some of those ideologies I think by seeing the different groups, and, and so the, the other piece I didn't talk about yet is they actually get into some nonpartisan research on the issue too. So then they're seeing, here's an ad that's making a certain claim. Here's the group running it. And then when they see the research, they're like, well, that's, they're, they're being very selective in the way maybe they're using that evidence, right? So on one hand, we're, we're in some ways, I, I think the, the tension for me has always been, we're training kids to learn to think a little bit like these people think. Um, and is that a good thing? So if we don't do a really good job on the reflective component, 
and helping them to to explicitly understand the goals that we have at the end of the simulation. If we're not doing that, then we risk actually making things worse in a way. We're basically training people who are going to selectively use data to make their cases and not be more thoughtful about it. And so I think that's always been a little bit of a tension in the simulation. So that's why we place so much emphasis on more of these critical aspects and the reflective aspect in particular, and being explicit that Purple State, you know, we we are an ethical firm, and we also like to really stick to the data that's there, and that we don't we we want to make sure that anything for our clients is is very you know ethically above board, which again veers away a little bit from what we know about this particular industry. But it's it's sort of the only stance I think we can take in in good faith in terms of of what we're trying to get students to do, rather than uh yeah training some future was it K Street prodigies something like that. Yeah, it's it's a little horrifying how much money actually goes to these firms when you start to look at it. it it's it's pretty unbelievable. But I, I mean, I think the the example that you use, I, I like the just the framing. What is the the story? But you know, you break down the issue, and for some people, it seems so clear cut. But when it comes to fracking, there's the economic opportunity that uh, that comes with with fracking, and so for those attacking fracking as a, as a practice, you're attacking their, their livelihood. And as a high school student who is examining this and thinking about creative solutions, there needs to be some sort of attempt to fill that financial gap if you want to convince somebody of your policy position, uh, because otherwise it's going to be you know, a purely emotional response rather than uh, a more, uh, I don't know, reason response, um, able to view what the what the research says about the environmental impacts, because let's face it, it's not going to matter to you. And it's hard to even argue with somebody who takes that specific position that, uh, you know, maybe there are some environmental impacts, but you're taking food off my table. So I want that food on the table. Yeah, I mean, in so in the in the sort of the story of the simulation, we have to learn about all sides on the issue, because that's the way you make a really informed campaign, right? You're both either making arguments, what you know, will appeal to your base, or you're making counter arguments to undercut some of those things. So knowing that when it comes to something like fracking, that it actually ends up creating very few jobs, as compared to the real environmental risks, not just to your region directly, but to other parts, I think is important. What I remember is one of the best examples we had of a campaign from the original version. We had a group of, a team of students develop a two-pronged campaign. They ran a sort of, uh, they designed a, a not in my backyard kind of approach for where this fracking was actually going to take place with making an argument just like that. Like the, the, the sort of economic benefits did not equal the environmental risk to their homes and water and all of these types of things. And then they they reached out to the basically the coastal areas of Virginia with a sort of clean water pollution type of campaign to try to convince, you know, what they saw is essentially they're in that version, especially they were really trying to find those undecided voters, the folks that were on the fence a little bit. So that's why they took the approach that they did. And so, again, a lot of it's thinking about who are you actually talking to, again, saying, well, what's the story that's going to be most persuasive to them? around this issue, knowing what they care about or what you can perceive at least they would care about and trying to find a way to get them to think about the issue, you know, in more thoughtful ways, I would say. But yeah, we, I think there's a certain point, we give sort of the launching pad to get into some of these issues. And then I think what we've seen at least is the teachers and students because of where they are, might get into more of that nuance that you're talking about or into more depth. We know we're trying to reach a range of academic 
sort of skill levels in these students. We want to make it to it as accessible as possible, but then we give them sort of the routes to go deeper into the issues and, the, and some of the things that you're talking about as well, which you've seen some, I mean, some students on individually just take off with it, groups take off with it, certain classes definitely went more in depth than we've seen than other ones. Um, but we're working with ninth graders up in Wisconsin and, and it's, you know, they were having really nuanced discussions around the issue of gun control and why people cared about it, different reasons. And, and for them, I think it was a much more, you could hear the polarization sort of dropping out a little bit in just the way that they're talking about different groups of people. And this was in the midst of the 2020 presidential campaign. It was going into that. So, you know, in a very polarized state like Wisconsin, to hear students having a, a discussion around an issue like that, not just debating sort of the data from it, but recognizing why people might feel emotionally about it. For example, why they might not be thinking rationally about it, I thought was really powerful. Cool. Yeah, that that's that's super interesting. And it feels like, you know, almost a more appropriate role for the teacher in this whole experience, uh, rather than becoming as familiar with the sort of purple state infrastructure, uh, thinking about how they can facilitate some of those conversations, you know, offline. That definitely seems seems interesting. The one thing that the students did buck up against was being assigned to a group that uh, for an, on the issue that they didn't believe in. Which was which we've gotten some resistance from students in, in all the times that we've run it. And that's that's a place where the teachers had to sort of, you know, bake the case that, look, this is an internship. You don't always get to choose sort of in these cases. This is actually the real world. Like you might be working for someone you don't completely agree with. And and also that's where they make the case like you have to understand how the other side sort of thinks in order to be effective in your own goals sort of outside of the simulation, too. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm channeling my father when I think back to him uh, encouraging me to do something like debate team because and then taking the, uh, the the opposite issue of what I actually believe in, because you learn more about your own side as you engage in uh, beliefs about the uh, the opposite side. Yeah, definitely. So with our last few minutes. And we've talked a little bit about this, um, but I do want to just hear your thoughts because you've done a lot of interesting research on the role of film in uh, in the social studies classroom. Uh, and I am a, a bit of a, a film nerd. I think there is a, a super interesting role that uh, that film can play. I also think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, fiction, I'm a big science fiction fan, and I think that uh, reading science fiction uh, texts to, uh, to learn about politics is another way because it can be done in, I think, a less controversial way where you're not actually dealing with actual issues, but you can still engage students in sort of hypothetical, hypothetical issues that are, you know, tangentially relevant to the you know, the issues that are in the real world. I'm, I'm a big fan of the the TV show and the, the books, The Expanse. And I feel like that would be sort of a perfect opportunity to integrate science fiction and television into the, the K-12 classroom. But all that's to say, like, what do you feel like the role of film should be in educating students about both historical events and the uh, the world that we're, we're living in today? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, it's, I think film can play a, a few different roles. One is um, it might be able to give us a visual and auditory sort of touch point to what would be really hard for your students to imagine. So like I was working with a, a historian once at a university level, and she was teaching about the, the partition of Kashmir and its relationship with India and, and what happened during the time period that the partition happened. And, and she would say one of the biggest challenges for her was her U.S. students, basically, they had no idea, like, what, they couldn't even imagine what this looks like. Like, they had no reference point to it. 
And so what she would do was use films, Indian films made before and after the partition to show how Kashmir was being represented and how that was charged by politics. So for example, before the partition, it's portrayed in films as this garden of Eden sort of destination, like lush, beautiful, amazing. After the partition, it's like a, a caustic hellhole, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like she was showing visually sort of both, you know, what it looked like, top, topography, what the people look like. You're doing all of those things, but you're also reflecting this political shift over just a little period of time. And so I thought that was a really powerful example for teaching about history, teaching about place, you know, and that's an affordance of film, I think, that it gives you place, people, culture, whatever it might be. And then also, though, showing this shift over, you know, a decade's time of, of because of a result of this historical incident. I use an example a lot, partly because it's, it's just got these great musical beginnings, too. I show Vietnam War films, um, just the introductions to show how people's views on Vietnam shifted over time and how that's reflected in film. So for example, I'll show the opening sequence to the Green Berets, which is a John Wayne vehicle. It's really like a World War II film set in the early days of Vietnam. It's got this very sort of marching, patriotic sort of cadence to the opening sequence with the song of the Green Berets and you're seeing them in, in coming through. And, and then I'll compare that to Full Metal Jacket, which is part of a, 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 a genre of films known as the noble grunt genres, which was in the 1980s. And it was sort of that time period where people reflected on the way that that Vietnam vets were being treated historically and were treated and viewed and that they deserved to be humanized, essentially. And and this is the one where they sh they're the opening sequence. They actually show them like shaving their heads and these guys sort of looking like just blank stares and things. And, and, and the, the soundtrack runs and you get this just very different view on the Vietnam War. And it helps you to open up things like, you know, at the beginning, the vast majority of Americans were in favor of going into Vietnam. And that's something that's not represented well in the textbooks, right? All we see is protest or think about like the nation was turning immediately on. And that's not true. It took a number of years before you saw that emerge. But it also then the, the full metal jacket sort of the film itself raises all sorts of issues and, and could be problematic depending on who you're teaching. But it, it, it does give you the sense of in that 1980s how people could still be against the war, but but look more humanistically at these soldiers, most of whom were drafted and came from backgrounds that, you know, they were there because they couldn't get deferrals, you know, that they had to go and 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 that for them, it was this experience that that shaped their lives in many ways. And, and so the recognition of that. So that's just another little example of, of that. I think the third one I would give is another Vietnam one, actually, but it's documentaries. I think documentaries are really fascinating and I think are more useful in some ways in classrooms, in part to teach the concept of documentary. Because people think that documentaries are objective and neutral many times. Many teachers I've talked to believe that. And then I'll you know, show them a documentary and start to get them to think about why did they select them for their classes? And it's because they liked it. And because essentially you find out it reflects their political views. And, and that's why they're choosing a lot of documentary films. And so what I'll try to work with them on is, is teaching sort of the multiple stories that documentaries can tell. Right. So oftentimes, and, and I'll use the fog of war, which is another, not just Vietnam, but uh, uh, it's an Errol Morris film. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. He's, he's the person that developed this thing called the, um, I'm trying to remember, it's the Interatron, I think he calls it, which is the system of mirrors so that you, the people being interviewed are actually staring right into the camera, which you don't normally see in documentary interviews. They're usually off to an angle, the way the camera setup is. 
And it's, it's actually unnerving to the viewer because you're not used to people staring directly at you, talking at you. And he does that because of the types of characters he picks for these films. And so in this case, you know, it's the former defense secretary who's interviewing on things, everything from like carpet bombing in World War II to, to the choice to go into Vietnam. And there's a sequence I use there around the Gulf of Tonkin resolution because they literally are visually showing evidence and telling the story letting McNamara tell this story. And then he's, he, he reverses it all and says, let's, let's go back. And then it retells the story with absolutely like showing all the flaws that are going on and visually. And it, it shows things like, you know, a sonar man in there. And you're like, is, did they really have a camera showing while he's seeing these torpedoes coming at the ship? And you say, no. Right. So it starts to you unpack a little bit. I think the visual, the audio and the multiple stories that are being told one's the director of the film One's the person being interviewed. And then a third one is this visual story that he's actually refuting this person's story essentially while they're saying it because of the choices that they made. And so I think documentaries are both really powerful to engage in political ideas and historical ideas, but also, you know, really, really problematic if, if you believe that they tell you sort of the only story or the truth about an event. And so making sure they're framed as, as things that have values and political views. Yeah, absolutely. No, I pr- appreciate that response. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I had two additional questions. You have a sure. couple more minutes? Yeah. So um, the last two questions, the first one, and maybe it's just the, the you know, three of the last few podcasts that I've had, but there seems to be something about social studies teachers going into research. Um, I know Dr. McAvoy, who, uh, Paula McAvoy at NC State, um, and Diana Hess um, at the University of Wisconsin, all three, uh, and you, all three are former social studies teachers. How do you think that being a former teacher, one, especially in the social studies states, in the social studies classrooms, um, how does that help inform the work that you do? Like what what kind of unique perspective do you have on this work that somebody who hasn't been in the classroom might not have? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. One is, I think one thing in our field that's a problem, but not a problem is that there's no, unlike science and math, which have developed over the years, sort of clear sequences of how they think kids should learn things. There's none of that in social studies, right? There's we can't even decide what a good citizen is or what history is most important. So it both allows teachers a lot of autonomy and space to make things relevant to their students, but it does also open the door to this hegemonic reteaching of the same sort of patriotic, limited white narrative that we see too often in history classrooms. So I think one thing as a teacher, like I saw that tension in my classroom. The other thing is I think for and I think Paul and Diane would probably say the same thing, given their experiences. We don't make assumptions about kids being monoliths in terms of their political views, right? They're all over the place. They're still forming as, as citizens. They're still forming as political beings. They're still forming as, you know, as what kind of adult they want to be sort of thing. And that's true even in areas where it might be a completely homogeneous community. You go in that classroom and start getting actual political views without them being able to associate with which party it might align to. And they're all over the place and their reasoning is all over the place. So I think, I think knowing that complexity of a classroom and that that's okay and that they might be parroting their parents to some degree is an opportunity for us to engage in, in these kinds of issues and go more in depth. So I think I wouldn't have known that without, without my years in a, in a classroom. I taught middle school. And I think the one thing I will say that I repeat on almost a daily basis is people highly underestimate what middle grade students are capable of really sophisticated ways. It may not look the same way that they might expect a high school or university student to do things. But one, they're brutally honest. 
often on things you don't want them to be, which is the fun of teaching middle school. But also they're really, really capable of, of doing, I think, and understanding complex systems as long as you can find a way to make it really relevant to them. And I think that those types of things come out in the curriculum I've designed, the work I've done. And it's sometimes why teachers think it's too sophisticated for their students. And so a lot of what I have to do when I'm implementing a research program like this, I have other people who do the statistics and do the measures and do things like that. I'm oftentimes trying to sell them to trust me that it will work. And that's also what I do in my teacher ed classes. Trust that your students will, will do this, that they will be good at it, and that you can get them there. They might need a lot of help, but they will be successful if you're really explicit about doing it. And I think that definitely informs my work with teachers and, and the sort of any designs of, of these types of interventions that, that I've done over the years. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I will, I will second that. I taught sixth grade math. And uh, previously before that, I taught second grade and I taught third grade. And I had some deep conversations with those third graders. Obviously, they're not able to, you know, understand the depth of some of the issues that we're talking about, but they are brutally honest. They also have this, I don't know, this like emotional depth to them that I always was struck by and would say things that adults would never say, but were, again, just more thought more thoughtful in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think they often are as capable as we want them to be. And so uh, giving them opportunities to have some of these conversations and just sort of seeing where it goes, obviously in a controlled environment, I, I think you can, you'd be surprised with, with what you find. Yeah, I think one of the things I saw in Virginia in particular, they started loosening up on the standardized testing in middle schools while I was there. And within two years, I was seeing more complex teaching going on in the middle schools than the high schools, simply as a result of taking away some of the tests and some of the, their version of standards in particular. So it, it only reinforced the idea that that one standards in used in that way are not a good thing, but also just the capability of folks in, in, in some of the, in, that we're not expecting enough often of them and that they're always going to reach to the bar that you set. Yeah, and that is a, a conversation for another time because that would take hours to, to unpack that. <laughs> so the last question I wanted to ask, at, at William & Mary, where you previously worked, you founded and directed the Interdis Interdisciplinary Program in Educational Studies. Can you tell us a bit about that program and what inspired its creation? Why Interdisciplinary Studies? Because this is something that I am also passionate about. I, go, I don't get to spend as much uh, time as I'd like doing more research on it. But I always felt like, especially in the middle and high school space, uh, obviously we're talking about higher ed, but in the middle and high school space, it was just a huge mess. We silo departments and there are so many opportunities to help students make more connections across those core content areas. And so I would love to see more interdisciplinary studies programs. Um, but uh, I'm just curious to hear, yeah, your, your background there and why you felt like it was important to, to start that department. Yeah, so um, William Mary, was, it was actually a big push, partly because we're a relatively small university. And so interdisciplinary programs were the way that you could draw from multiple departments and, and really get into timely, I think, issues. So neuroscience was a huge thing at, at William Mary, but there was no neuroscience department. It was an interdisciplinary program. I, I think we, our school of ed was largely, especially the department I was in, was largely teacher preparation. But I think the folks that we had recruited in as faculty, you know, their interests, their research, their things that they worked on went way beyond teacher education. So we wanted to reach folks across the university that weren't just interested in becoming teachers and that were interested in educational problems. And there were a number of folks that we knew across in other departments 
who were working on those problems. We had people in government who were working on public policy that were working on education. We had people in like uh, Hispanic studies was big there in terms of some of the things they were working on in education, sociology, you know, religion. We had across the board, we had people in philosophy, we had people working on education problems. And so we wanted to build a hub where we could bring them together use some of the courses they were already teaching, but then also have an opportunity to rethink and, and generate some new courses. So it took years, as these programs do at universities, to try to convince people to try this, in part because there are you know real costs of, of freeing up faculty like me to teach an interdisciplinary studies class that's then they have to hire someone to teach my teacher ed class. But we were able to convince them. We had a lot of support across campus. And, and I think we really wanted to be driven around also inquiry William Mary was known as a, a big feeder for graduate schools. And so we wanted to make sure that students were not only taking courses that focused on, on big issues in education, but they're also getting the chance to do inquire into them, to do sort of independent research or group research or be part of labs. And so one of the, the classes, uh, there's two classes that I taught in it that were sort of my babies. One was I taught in the media studies department too. And, and so I taught a course on schools on screens, basically is what it was. And it looked at issues of race, class, gender in representations of schools across historically. So we started with a D.W. Griffith film from the early 1900s called The Teacher and the Waif. Um, and it, it looks at issues of poverty and how schools are portrayed. We go into Little Rascals, which brings, of course, all sorts of class and race issues. And then into sort of your civil rights era films, Blackboard Jungle, and then into sort of your 1980s ones, which look at the Reagan era. And so we were connecting issues of race at the time educational policies, which are really highlighted in popular films, a lot of cases, and building some of those same sort of film analysis, looking at context, looking at what it represents in terms of, of education, and tying it to some of the education literature that was out there. So that one was, was a lot of both fun, but also just this really course that students got really engrossed in. And then the second one I got to teach right before I left, and it was a co-taught course. We had a Mellon Foundation grant for actual interdisciplinary courses. So that were co-taught by faculty from different departments. So I taught it with a person that was in the Hispanic studies program at the time. And he focused on literature and sort of popular culture. And so it was a race and education course. So I would bring sort of the social science aspect and he would bring in literature and, and culture from it. And so you know, we were combining looking at desegregation. For example, one big chunk of it, we looked at Prince Edward County and desegregation and massive resistance in Virginia. And we did it through sort of multiple forms. We had some films and television that were showing it. We had some original sort of data, the types of tests that were used. We had them looking at some of the schools that were segregation academies in Virginia that are still schools today and look at how they told their own founding story. And we had students who went to them often. So there were, and then we had them looking at their own schools and using data to try to see what it looked like today in terms of ones that had been desegregation and looks at the effects of it. We looked at redlining um, using tools that were developed by the University of Richmond, have these great digital tools looking at redlining, economic development, how they layer onto school failure and school and population demographics and where they are. So it was this really great way to tie it in then with literature that was going on, which included a Maya Angelou book that she put together with images around desegregation, along with these really powerful prose and, and the juxtaposition of that and bringing in March. We taught with John Lewis's graphic novel, um, along with the civil rights era to give sort of the bigger picture of what was going on. Anyway, so you can tell we got we got really excited in teaching it and it was a lot of fun. And I think, again, a really meaningful course for students because they saw how you could approach the same problem through through different routes in terms of exploring it. 
and they learned about the you know the original boarding school at William Mary, which was a Native American boarding school, and where it came from from the roots because it it's it's one of the things that's brought up in Ibrahim Kendi's the stamped from the beginning, the book on the history of the the origins of the racist idea. I can't remember what the original title was, um, but we use chapters from that because Jefferson and William Mary are mentioned in it, and sort of the roots of some of the educational problems are really deep in some of the early chapters. So anyway, so it it was it was a class that we really got to I think just. It was a ton of work, but it was a class where we got a chance to really rethink what could a class on race and education look like from these two different disciplines and, and really engage a group of, of students in it from across the university, which was also really great. Yeah, super interesting. And, you know, even from a practical perspective, as a teacher ed program, as I'm sure you know, teachers, they are teachers, they're content developers, they're psychologists, they're sociologists, they're historians, they're classroom managers, they are all of those things at the same time. And so approaching that work from all of those perspectives, uh, building even like a baseline of skills uh, can certainly help um, teachers succeed once they once they get into the classroom. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And we found a lot of people that decided they wanted to try the education route that came through these through this program and others who went into other aspects of, um, you know, political science, but they're really interested in looking at citizenship like citizenship education, but from a political science standpoint. So I think the goals were either to get people into the field of education or get people thinking really thoughtfully about education when they went into other disciplines. And and from that output, we definitely made an impact through that interdisciplinary program. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This conversation was great. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing, continuing the conversation. Uh, so Jeremy Stoddard, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.